The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Credit Suisse's quarantining busting chairman is out of a job, and Unilever makes a £50 billion play for toothpaste and painkillers. Tune in as our columnists discuss our top business stories. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange business. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Peter Fallarsen, EMEA editor of Reuters Breaking Views, coming to you from Northwest London. For this week's edition, I talk to Breaking Views columnists about the latest upheaval at one of Switzerland's largest banks and a £50 billion tussle between two of Britain's biggest consumer goods companies. First, Liam Proud talks about the sudden departure of Antonio Horta Osorio, the high-flying bank executive who had taken over as chairman of Credit Suisse less than a year ago. The latest in a series of unfortunate developments at the bank, which has been rocked by a spying scandal and the high-profile collapses of clients, including the Archegos hedge fund and supply chain lender Greensill. Liam explains why breaching COVID quarantine rules cost Horta Osorio his job and offers some tongue-in-cheek advice on the next steps in his career. After that, Amy Donnellan and Dasha Afanasieva discuss Unilever's surprising £50 billion takeover bid for the consumer division of GlaxoSmithKline, the UK drugs giant. It's a high-stakes gamble by Unilever boss Alan Jope, who's under pressure from shareholders grumbling about the performance of the company that makes Hellman's mayonnaise. But it also ups the stakes for GSK CEO Emma Walmsley, who wants to spin off the consumer business but faces an uppity investor of her own in the form of Elliott Associates. Hello, Liam. Welcome back to the Views Room. Hello, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Well, I guess, I mean, in a different world, Antonio Porto Osorio would this week be at the World Economic Forum in Davos hosting clients and, and wealthy clients and world leaders in his capacity as chairman of Credit Suisse. But as we all know, Davos got cancelled. And now AHO, as he is widely known in the industry, has been cancelled too. Uh, explain to us what happened. Absolutely. So so a mere nine months or so after taking over as the chair at Credit Suisse, the giant Swiss wealth manager, he's gone. Now, so the official statement, which landed very late on Sunday night, UK time, said he had resigned. But I mean, it's quite obvious, I think, to everyone close to the story that the board has basically pushed him out. Why have they done that? He was revealed to have breached international quarantine rules twice. So the first time was back in the summer when he went to see the Wimbledon final, which is, I guess you could make an argument that it's kind of relevant to Credit Suisse's clients. You know, Rogers Federer, who was in the final, is a kind of brand ambassador person for Credit Suisse. But in any case, he didn't abide by the COVID-19 rules. Um, and then the board found out that he actually did this a second time in December when he this time he breached the Swiss quarantine rules. So this was not a great look, basically, because Credit Suisse has had a lot of problems in past years. It had this Archegos hedge fund blow up on its hands, losing it about $5 billion. And it also got into a very messy situation with Greensill, a supply chain financier, which went insolvent. So essentially, AHO came in in April and he was all about risk management, personal responsibility, creating a culture of accountability. And then he appears to have breached 
the international travel rules twice, that was not something that the board members thought was a very good look at all, and they've chosen not to tolerate it. I mean, it does seem like maybe I'm just sort of my antenna are off because I live in the UK where the British Prime Minister is currently refusing to resign, even though he seems to have pretty clearly broken his own quarantine rules. I mean, it seems like the kind of thing that that maybe would, would lead to a uh, you know, a slap on the wrist and, and a fine or a, or a reduced bonus for a year or something like that. I mean, is this really the full story behind why the board decided they no longer wanted him around? So it's a good question. I think there's a few things on that. That is definitely the the AHO position on this. The AHO sort of spin would be, look, this is this does not rise to the level of being removed from a chairmanship. As you point out, it doesn't appear to rise to the level of being removed as prime minister when you're actually setting these rules. So why should the chairman of a bank be held to a higher standard than someone in public office? You can kind of see where he's coming from, but I think I'd I'd say two things about that. One, the context is extremely important here. Credit Suisse was in a complete mess, still is in a complete mess. The share price is about one third lower than it was at the beginning of last March. Just for comparison, UBS is up 25% in that time. It's an absolutely huge amount of value destruction that's gone on at Credit Suisse. And he was the reform candidate. I think if he was just any old person who'd been there for a while and had, you know, everyone's made mistakes in this quarantine situation, maybe he would have got away with, you know, a big fine and a slap on the wrist. But I think the context really does make it different. And I think that's partly the thinking behind the board. Now, there is a kind of even further out position that you could take, which is slightly conspiratorial, but I think there's maybe an element of truth in it. So this would be the Swiss stitch up theory. So Credit Suisse is obviously a kind of Swiss national icon. AHO was an outsider and was a very, is a very, very kind of strong, aggressive character. You know, he wielded kind of total control at Lloyd's banking group, which was his previous charge where he was CEO. He's known as a quite a brash, domineering personality who gets what he wants. And there is a feeling in some circles in Switzerland that he may have rubbed a few people up the wrong way and that they may have been looking for an excuse to get rid of him. I don't think uh, that that sounds a bit simplistic to me, but I wouldn't rule out there being a tiny bit of opportunism here on the board's part. Yeah, well, there was, I mean, I guess the other thing that I read about was there was apparently a a stop off in the Maldives on the corporate jet, which, uh, which also raised some eyebrows. I mean, I think one thing you can always tell with these things is that when when these kind of stories start emerging, you know that there are people inside the bank who are trying to who don't like him and who are who are trying to undermine him. And 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 I guess they succeeded. I mean, the other the other thing I guess to point out is that you know he was he was a kind of high profile outsider. He's Portuguese. He spent a lot of his career working in London. You know, the previous CEO of Credit Suisse was Tijan Tiam, who, who is French Ivorian and again came from outside Switzerland and outside the banking industry, actually, and, and sort of and left uh, in, in sort of controversial circumstances. So maybe there is a little sense of now that we have a, Credit Suisse now has a, a new Swiss chairman to go with its Swiss CEO. First time, I think, in 20 years that the bank has been led by, by, by the, both Swiss, both people in those top two jobs have been Swiss. Is there a yep. sense here that maybe they're... Um, you know, they're sort of circling the wagons a bit and um, uh, and, and, and trying to sort of uh, re- regain some control. Let me put it this way. I, I think I would be very happy if I was Thomas Gottstein, the chief executive of Credit Suisse. I think the perception in Zurich was that AHO was more than a chair. 
that he was really an executive chair. And you saw his name popping up on all these kind of risk committees and things that were tasked with dealing with sort of going through the bank's exposures and, you know, weeding out any kind of difficult business that they didn't want to be on. That's not typically the kind of thing you'd see a chair become involved with. So um, I, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely subscribe to the Swiss circling the wagons theory, but I wouldn't dismiss it as completely worthless. Just another point on that kind of insider versus outsider treatment. An interesting data point here is how the board dealt with Urs Rona, the previous chairman, who honestly oversaw scandal after scandal after scandal at the Swiss bank. There's no kind of suggestion that he was directly implicated in, in any of them. But, you know, that guy, he was allowed to, to retire, having overseen a vast amount of value destruction at Credit Suisse and the spying thing and various other kind of trading blow ups. He was allowed to retire, you know, pay intact, sort of not, you know, unblemished kind of reputation, at least officially. Whereas Aho, you know, first it'll stumble and he's out. So I do think there is a bit of a differential treatment there. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, we should say that that Credit Suisse sort of made it very clear on in that statement late on Sunday night that, that they're sticking to the strategy and that the, the AHO strategy was it was approved by the whole board and, and, and nothing is going to change there, at least for the time being, we shall see. OK, so then I guess the question is, is, you know, what do you do if you're a high flying bank executive with this track record at Lloyd's of, of, of turning around the bank who then sort of goes into and falls out of a job? In fairly short order, do you do you think that that's the end of his banking career, or um, or do you sort of see a future for him possibly in banking? So, I did a kind of straw poll of kind of sources in the in the you know banking community, and it did seem like most people's gut instinct was that he would not be able to get a major job after this. I think that's a bit pessimistic, really. We did a kind of spoof letter on the Breaking News website from a imaginary headhunter, which people should go and read if they if they fancy a giggle at their desks. The argument there, and, and I think it's right, even though it's a piece of satire, the argument is that basically you have this weird situation after the financial crisis in European banking, where there was kind of a lost decade. It was basically 10 years of cleaning up and shrinking and not making a huge amount of money because regulation was rising and interest rates were falling. So there's really very few people that emerged from that period with a kind of stellar commercial track record of success. Now, Aho is one of those few people who did. He basically pulled Lloyd's back from the brink and turned it into, you know, basically Britain's most dependable, reliable, most highly valued retail bank. It makes a lot of money. It was generating very good shareholder returns before the pandemic. Analysts seem to think that it will once again generate very good shareholder returns. So he's got some scandal to his name now, but he also has a very scarce asset in European banking, which is a good CV. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll have to see whether um, a quarantine busting trip to Wimbledon is, this, is something that another board that is a bit desperate for its experience can maybe overlook. Liam, thanks very much. I guess we will uh, we will see where he pops up. And also, I'm sure there will be further bumps along the road for Credit Suisse as there have been over the past year or two. I look forward to talking about them with you. Thanks, Peter. Bye. Hi, Amy and Dasha. Welcome back to the Views Room. Thank you. Hi, Peter. Hello. So your year has started with a bit of a bang. Got a tasty £50 billion corporate takeover tussle. We learned last weekend that Unilever 
big consumer giant is eager to buy GlaxoSmithKline's consumer business, which makes things like Sensodyne toothpaste and Advil painkillers. So maybe Dasha, I can start with you. Why is Unilever making this bid? Uh, well, fundamentally, the problem for Unilever's chief executive, Alan Jope, is that he is in categories that he considers to be slower growing. So if you think about stuff like Bovril, which is meat paste and mayonnaise, Unilever makes all of that. But it also has these faster growing prestige beauty divisions. So what Jope said to investors this week is, look, we're going to accelerate this shift out of the slower, slower growing stuff and the GSK acquisition is going to help us do that. Um, and instead of after this offer was rebuffed, kind of playing it cool and, you know, saying we're going to bide our time, he sort of doubled down on the Monday uh, in a bit to persuade investors that all of this makes sense, which which kind of failed because the stock price fell a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of it's interesting that he sort of announced that strategy. But the, the, the fundamental problem with the strategy is that the company he wants to buy, the owner of it doesn't want to sell. Right. So so Amy, I mean, so we have GlaxoSmithKline, which which, you know, you've been writing about over the past year or so, been having all kinds of upheaval. And Emma Wormsey, the CEO, is under a lot of pressure. She wants to spin off this business. So why, when someone comes along and says, I'm basically willing to pay you 50 billion pounds, most of it in cash, why she said no? I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, the stakes are very high for Emma Walmsley. As you mentioned, over the past year, she's been under quite a bit of pressure. Activist investor Elliot has come in. They've made all sorts of demands, including her applying for her new job, which would be to run the new pharma business once the consumer bit is spun off. Now, I guess what she is thinking and what GSK has said is that this fundamentally undervalues the company. And if we look at the numbers, that is, it's kind of hard to argue that that is the case, because if you, the 50 billion that they're talking about is about 18 and a half times their 40 EBITDA on an enterprise value. And that basically means that they're being valued like Procter & Gamble, which is this over 300 billion giant in the industry. They sell a lot more products than GSK Consumer does. So that's the way they're kind of seeing themselves. And she also put out these very kind of punchy revenue figures, revenue targets, which reckons that they can grow the business about four to six percent over the next few years, which would be something that they have they have not done so far. They have not gotten gotten anywhere near that. So I guess she's kind of trying to convince investors with this rejection that stay the course. Plan A is the spinoff and that although this is, you know, 50 billion in the hand, in the future, this business, once it's spun off, it might actually be worth more. A bidder may come in with a much higher premium once this growth is realized. Yeah, I see. So and, and, and do you think that that is, uh, how likely do you think that is? Because I mean, I guess one possible theory, right, there's been a lot of talk about about other companies coming maybe to buy this business. I mean, you've written stories where people have talked about Procter & Gamble, or maybe Johnson & Johnson, so it's a couple of the big U.S. companies possibly coming and making an offer. Is there a sense maybe that she's she's saying no to this because she thinks she can get a higher bid from someone else? I mean, I think that may be the case. I and mean, that's certainly not what they're saying. They're still saying that, you know, the spinoff is, is really what they think is going to realize value for shareholders. But as you say, we are hearing that this would be an ideal fit for somebody like Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson. 
I think Nestle to a lesser extent. But again, there's a question mark over if that was really the case, why have they not come forward so far? As in this whole process of the breakup started in 2018. I think most people saw that as GSK consumer was then, I guess, would be open to a bid. So I think that it's it's sort of hard to to rationalize that she thinks that there is a bid rather we're hearing from from our banker contacts and and I heard during the week that there isn't a bid so far from one of those one of those names that I mentioned. Yeah, I see. So maybe maybe Alan Joe at Unilever can uh, can afford to bide his time a bit. But but Dasha, I mean it, it does it is quite unusual. I can't really think of an example of a of a CEO sort of launching a major kind of change in strategy for his business based on a deal that he hasn't yet done. I mean, it feels a bit like, you know, one of those one of those soccer clubs that comes out at the beginning of the transfer season and says, well, we've got 100 million pounds to spend on players. And obviously the price of all their targets goes up immediately. I mean, he's kind of, he's under quite a lot of pressure to get this done now, isn't he? I think he is. I mean, in a way, the strategy has been sort of floating around in some form for a while because they've been selling out of, various food brands like, you know, spreads and, and ref- refreshments like tea and buying into cosmetics. But yes, he's had to fast forward kind of announcing it really solidly. He was going to do it in February. And yeah, there's tons of pressure because Unilever has already been under pressure because it's been under uh, underperforming. Some of his investors are already extremely upset, you know, and then you have this massive sell off in response to its plan. They're obviously not impressed, not convinced. It's very difficult for him to get them back on side, to get them to sort of to believe in his strategy. He's extremely exposed. Yeah. So um, um, on the one hand side, you have GSK with its activist investor sort of saying, you know, we want the maximum value for this business. And on the other side, you've got Unilever, which I guess potentially, if it doesn't pull off this, this transformation, may find itself facing an activist investor of its own. So, um, so high stakes. Well, look, I think uh, obviously this story is going to have is going to run for a bit, and um, uh, I'm sure that we'll get you both back to you'll be following it closely and, and writing about it for Breaking Views, and and we'll get you back to talk about the future developments as they happen. Thank you very much, Dash and Amy. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslett in London. Subscribe to Viewsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.